Jintai. And we are going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 1. I am excited because today I get to start preaching on one of my favorite subjects that I love studying and reading in the Bible, and that is the life of David. Now, we're actually going to be here a while. We'll probably go through the end of the year in David. We might even go further. Who knows? Uh, because what you find in David, you find the longest story of a human life in all of Scripture. So this is the longest story that is God-shaped and God-inspired to tell us about God and mankind. You find in David, really the first biography in all of ancient writing that just tells the story from life to death, including this inward part. You find in David the model of how God and mankind interact. And you find in David the anticipation and, uh, and a symbol of Jesus in his coming kingdom. So David is going to be the key figure in the Old Testament. Um, and uh, we're going to spend some time here. And we're going to start by reading 1 Samuel chapter 1. And I do have this up here. Why don't we stand? I'll just read this. We won't read it in unison, but if you don't mind standing for the reading. We are told in the NIV version that there was a certain man from Ramathan, a Zephi from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Joraham, and the son of Elihu, who was the son of Tahu, the son of Zeph, an Ephraimite. You're going to be quizzed on all that. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Peniah. Peniah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of meat to his wife, uh, Peniah, and to her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed up her womb. Because the Lord had closed up her womb, Oh, there we go. Uh, had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her until she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting in his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly, and she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and, and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used upon his head. And as she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth, Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk, and so he said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. No, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking beer or wine. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. 
I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant what you have asked him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. And then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord and went back to their home at Ramah. And Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. Father, would you open your words now, please? These are your words, not mine. At least I hope that's going to be true. I pray that you would allow them to penetrate to our hearts, that you would give us hope, and you would give us challenge as well. Lord, through your Spirit, would you guide me in what I say and in what we receive? Thank you, Father. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Hannah was barren. Hannah was barren. That's the first thing we're told right off the bat. It strikes me, hopefully it should strike us as we think about it, that when the Lord wants to bring this great figure of David onto the scene, he begins the story with a barren woman named Hannah. It should strike us that God is going to use this woman as an integral part of his story. Now, I want us, first of all, to step back and, and let's get the, the bird's eye view, the 10,000 feet view of what's happening here. God has brought his people, Israel, out of slavery in Egypt, which is a, in itself is a spiritual symbol because God is rescuing his people from the slavery and bringing them into a land of fulfillment. And he does that in the books, of course, of Exodus. And we see them begin to be settled in the book of Joshua. But then Joshua dies. And what happens is that the people, though they have the covenant, though they have the priesthood, they begin turning away from God. And there is in this book of Judges this recurring cycle. The people sin, and God leaves his protection off of them. He does not remember them, to use biblical uh, terminology. And then God remembers them by setting, or by setting up a judge. And when you, think, when you hear the word judge, it's not a guy up there on a, on a throne, you know, with a gravel, gavel. Uh, giving judicial decision. It's more of a, the idea of a savior. The judges don't sit in a courtroom. They fight battles. And then they, they lead the people. But the main thing they do is rescue the people of Israel from God's enemies. And uh, you have this recurring theme. There's a spiral, but it's a downward spiral. The nation, which was brought in with such hope, it's God's special possession, is becoming just like the nations around them. They're losing the presence of God and the power of God and all God's blessings. In fact, the book of Judges, as it comes to a close, this is the very last uh, verse in the book of Judges. You begin hearing this frame again, especially in these last chapters, which are horrendous chapters of, of greed and, and sexual violence and murder, and dismemberment, and civil war, and deceit. This is what the nation has sunk to. <coughs> and four times we're told this. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. And then it concludes, in those days there was no king in Israel, 
everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Not that that sounds anything like today, right? <laughs> so here is where we're at then. Samuel, the book of 1 Samuel, opens up the story of how God rescues his people from a state of, of misery and chaos and moral confusion and moral evil and defeat in the hands of the enemies. And he brings them into a kingdom uh, of prosperity and security and peace and blessing and flourishing. So we go from the time of, of judges here to the time of, of David and Solomon, where now they are the great powers in the land, and God brings incredible wealth. And it says, describes Solomon's splendor as being unlike any, anyone else in the world at that time. Now, to get a little bit more sharpened picture of this, we can see Israel's state as they were here in these first part of the book of Samuel. And this is before God brought forth uh, David. It says, in fact, that at that time, though the nation of Israel settled in what we call the, what would be the pink area here, they had settlements in all these areas. In fact, this was basically a territory conquered by Saul. Yet, though they had settlements in all those areas, they were under the thumb of the Philistines and the other nations around them, but especially the Philistines. The Philistines were down here along the coast. We call this Gaza today. They were apparently descended from the, the Greeks, so they had some advanced technology. Uh, we tend to think of the Philistines as you know, big, ugly, hairy, smelly. Um, but probably we should think of them more like uh, Greeks uh, because that's where they descended from. And if you see some of the descriptions of their armor, it's somewhat similar. Uh, anyway, we're told the Philistines controlled all this territory. And even over Israel, they apparently had some control because they would not let the Israelites have swords or spears. In fact, on the day of battle, and this is the large battle, not a soldier with Saul or Jonathan had a sword or spear except for those two men. This is where Israel is. This is about as low as they could get short of the, of the exile. Compare this to what we have in 2 Samuel chapter 7. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around him, and then he says to his, his uh, prophet Nathan, here I am, living in the house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. So he begins to think of this temple of the Lord. But here's what I want us to note. By the time David is settled in his palace, which will be about uh, 50 to 70 years from the time of where we just read, Israel's reign is all this area here. The Philistines confined to an area on the coast, and uh, their reign goes all the way up, at least in influence, to the Euphrates. Edom and Moab and Ammon and all these nations subjected to them. God had given him rest, shalom on every side. Now, how does that happen? It begins with Hannah, the barren woman. Hannah was barren, we're told, right off the bat. Hannah was barren and could not bear a child. Her husband, Elkanah, loved her dearly. I get the impression, just from the hints in his family line and the fact that he had two wives, he's probably a wealthy, well-established man. 
His family had an important lineage in Israel. At some point, again, reading between the lines, not sure, but probably because Hannah was not able to conceive, he took another wife because he wanted an heir for his family line. So now he has two wives. Hannah's torment is only made more difficult when the second wife begins bearing children and taunting her, lording it over her. It's hard for us to think in her mindset, but if you were a woman anywhere on the earth at this time, but especially in the Middle East, if you were barren, this was a a very deep sign of, of your not being fully who you were supposed to be. Now, this is not what God ever said, of course, but that was the cultural context that they had. And so her anguish is because in her mind, in her culture, in her time, in her spirit, her, her life's work, her life's potential, what she was for, was not being fulfilled. You ever felt that way to some degree? Or maybe you feel that some way right now. Maybe you look at your life and you don't seem like you have much to offer. Things are not going the way you thought they might. Maybe you're in the last stages, last decade or two of your life. And you wonder, you know, in a youth worshiping culture, what value do I have to give? Maybe you look at other people with their gifts and they've got so much more to offer. You wonder, how can you know, God use me greatly? Hannah is barren. She is destitute. She comes before the Lord. And, and I, I love the way her husband, Elkanah, tries to console her. Hannah, why are you crying? Aren't I better than ten sons? You can see his concern, but also you know, he just doesn't understand her heart, right? And uh, we don't know what she said to him in response to this. But we know that when they went to Shiloh, which would be there, which was where the tabernacle was located at this time. She would go up to the yearly festival and she would pour out her heart to the Lord. At some point, at some point in this, she conceived in her idea that she would give this child back to the Lord. She must have had the idea that at this point in her life, after so many years, if she got a child, it could only be as a direct act of, act of God, working through natural means, but opening her womb, and she would give him back to the Lord. No razor will be on your head. That's just a short term for saying he will be a Nazarite. And a Nazarite was a special classification or, of a person who would take a vow to do something for the Lord. Usually it was short term. Part of that was they would drink no wine. They would not cut their hair. Uh, Samson was a, took a Nazarite vow, and uh, that's part of the reason his haircut was so disabling. His power wasn't in his hair. His power was in his relationship to God, and when that was broken, symbolized by that, that's when he lost his power. But she says, I want to give him to the Lord in a special way all his life. And Eli, the priest, looks down at her, and she's really pouring out her heart. He goes, basically, he says, you know, modern, in modern parlance, uh, Go home, Hannah, you're drunk, right? Oh, I'm not drinking. Don't, don't mistake me for a woman like that. Just come to your house drunk. No, I've come to pour out my house in anguish to the Lord. And Elkanah says this blessing. I'm sorry, Eli. May the Lord grant you what you have asked him. 
funny to me. Eli is not a great spiritual man, at least as painted in these opening uh, sections. In fact, later on we see his sons, the priests, are wicked, vile, and, and he does nothing to restrain them in his priestly duties. He is at least complicit in defiling the worship of the Lord. And yet, God so worked this that his blessing seemed to be part of the way that God was going to bring this child to Hannah. What to make it? I, I don't know. Other than God can do whatever he wants. He's not bound by any formulas or even our common sense. But he blesses her and says, may God grant you this. And they go home. And her husband and she make love and finally, finally, she brings forth a son. Finally, she brings forth a son. And in the course of time, it tells us that she brought this son to the Lord and he became the prophet that we know as Samuel. Samuel. Now, Samuel will become the first, um, will become the transitional figure here. Ultimately, this, is going, this story is going to be about David. And we're going to see something right off the bat. We're going to see that David, this great figure that God brings on the scene, is going to be a, a very symbol of Jesus. In fact, the name that's used more often in the scripture, Old Testament and New, than any other besides Jesus, is the name of David. Uh, Jesus is going to call himself David's son. He's going to take the, those titles upon himself. He's going to quote psalms that David wrote and apply them to himself. And over and over and over again, you see that the New Testament is going to look at David as a symbol, a precursor of Jesus who is to come, all brought about through this, this barren woman and her prayer. And so I'm going to, we see kind of the, the picture here. What's introduced is, first of all, Samuel comes. And Samuel has a very special place. God didn't have to do it this way. But he chose to allow Samuel to come on the scene. And Samuel's kind of like this transitional figure. On the one hand, he's like a judge. In fact, some Bible scholars call him the last judge. Because he, he, he organizes and centralizes as a leadership and helps Israel. But on the other hand, he's also a prophet. And then he performs priestly duties as well. So he's, he's very much this transitional figure that God's going to use. And why does he do this? Well, I think part of what happens is this. God is showing that the transition from this divided state led by these judges that he raises up occasionally, the transition from that into the kingship is his doing. And so he's going to raise up a priest who will listen to him and be anointed in a special way. And this priest will be his instrument by which he shows that his anointing, God's anointing, is on first Saul and then David. So he wants to use Samuel as his representative to show this very key thing, that this lineage of David that comes about is God's doing. This is God's work. God is the one who is overseeing this whole story, and he's using these human beings. So it brings David on the scene. Why is David like Christ? Now, he's not like Christ in every way, but he's like Christ in some ways. He defeats God's enemies. He establishes the kingdom. He brings shalom, peace, rest, wholeness, fullness. And then finally, he teaches us what it means to be a human before God. David is a, the largest psychological profile we have in all the scriptures. Because we not only have the story of David that runs through 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, the first part of Kings, 
but we also have through the pen of David his thoughts and his heart. David, we see fully a picture of how humans and God can interact and live and grow together in their life. So that's, of course, what Jesus does more fully. Now, again, there are differences. The David's enemies are the Philistines and the Moabites and the Ammonites. Jesus defeats the spiritual enemies that we cannot see. Establishes a kingdom, but we'll talk about that kingdom, how that's different in just a second. Jesus teaches us what it means to be human before God because he is the only one who lived a perfect human life. So he becomes a model for our humanity. David's kingdom brought relative temporary shalom. And you probably heard that word meaning peace, but it means more than just an absence of conflict or war. Peace, rest, wholeness, fullness. Jesus' eternal kingdom brings that eternally and perfectly. So David becomes this figure. He's not only in the lineage of David biologically, but he is spiritually the forefather of Jesus, as it were. The one who, when we look at him, we see what the Messiah might be like. Now, here's what I'm getting back to now. This is Ruth here, Hannah. Hannah is going to give birth to Samuel, who will use his spiritual blessings. This isn't a biological connection here. But his anointing, his spiritual anointing from God to show that this is God's anointed one. Anyone know who this might be? Ruth. Very good. Um, because one of the other things you see is at the same time period of the judges, you have this beautiful love story of Ruth. Ruth, a foreigner, a peasant woman. She's also barren. She lived in Moab with, a, with the son of Naomi for 10 years, but had no children. So she also is barren. And yet, through her just loyalty and love to Naomi, when she did not leave her and go back to her own people, but wanted to minister and help this, this older widow who is now more barren than she was because of her age. God used that to bring about the lineage of David. She becomes the great-grandmother of the king, David, and then one who is in the line of Jesus himself. So here's what I'm kind of getting at. God is going to use let me put it this way. I'm just going to sum this up in a, in a few sentences here. See if I can put this right. One of the things I want to get across more perfectly than anything else here or more fully is this. No matter what it looks like God is always working his plan for his good kingdom. God is always working. He's doing that right now in ways that we can't see. God was working at the time of Judges when they were at their lowest. He was already preparing the family lineage of Boaz and Ruth. He was always already preparing the people who would bring forth the conditions as well as the life of this woman, Hannah. All during this time where it seemed God was absent, and by the way, we're talking about a period of 
hundreds of years, and even to the life of David, where you really don't see any miracles involved. You look at the life of David, you see answered prayers, but you don't see the miracles. Because this is a life where God wants to show he's working through the common and the everyday, the ordinary, the things we might not value. God's always working towards this great purpose and kingdom. Right now, right now, God is working, bringing about a kingdom. God is working to bring about a kingdom that will replace the kingdoms of this world, not by force of arms, but by the force of love, because that will be his characteristic. God is doing that right now. He may be, to our eyes and ears, silent. We may not hear him. We may not see him working. But he is never ceasing. Jesus said in response to the Pharisees, they were accusing him of working on the Sabbath day, even though he was only healing and helping. And you remember what he said? He said, my father is at work until this day. You know, he hasn't stopped. He's always doing his work. Romans 8, God is working all things out for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So the first thing we see, before David even gets on the scene, before Saul, before even Samuel arrives on our, in, in our scriptures here, we see a barren woman that God's already working in her heart. Here's the second thing I notice. We aren't going to see it. We are not going to see how God is working in our life. Do you think Ruth had any idea when she was sitting on the, on, the, between, on the border between Moab and Israel, deciding which way to go, do you think she had any idea that God would use that decision to bring forth the greatest king of Israel and ultimately the greatest king, uh, eternal king forever? No, of course not. There are going to be decisions you make today, this week, that God will use in ways that you will never see until you are with him and he rolls back the scroll, as it were. I don't know how that looks, but until that day, you will not see. God hides it from us. And I believe he hides it from us, partly at least, because if we could see the glory, it might be too much for us. Do you think Hannah saw when she was praying and worshiping before God that God would answer her prayers a far, far greater way than she would ever understand. That God would use her as part of this key of his eternal redemptive purpose. No, she didn't understand. All she knew was her heartache. That brings me to the third thing. God's always going to be working. He's going to be doing it through ways that we cannot see. And do you see? Very often, God works not through our strengths, not through the areas where we feel strong, where we feel competent, but in the weakest, most painful, most humiliating parts of our life. That's where God's going to work the most. Ruth, she had nothing. She came in her very weakness as this Moabite foreigner coming in was what aroused the attention of Boaz, who saw in her such great faithfulness to an Israelite. Hannah's there worshiping and praying and finally come to the place, I assume it was both her decision and God's in some ways, that she would give this child to the Lord in the temple service to be used by him. 
She counts to that after years and years and years of heartache, month after month after month being disappointed with the desire, the greatest desire of her heart not being met. God used that very thing to prompt her to thinking about giving this child back to the Lord because she understood in a way that she wouldn't have if she would have gotten pregnant the first year that she was married, that this child is a direct gift from God. What are the areas of weakness, humiliation, areas of your life that you wish things could be so, so different? I get that. But let's not despise what God is doing. Let's instead have the faith to say, like Hannah, I believe God will use this in ways that I cannot see. If only I turn towards him in faithfulness, in response, rather than harden my heart and turn my back. See, ultimately, Hannah's story is part of the bigger story of Samuel. The Samuel story is part of the bigger story of David. David's story is, of course, part of the bigger story of God's story of redeeming mankind from the punishment of our sins, establish his eternal kingdom in Jesus. And this is you. Your story is here. It may not look like much. I'm sure no one really thought that much of Hannah at the time. But God makes it part of a bigger story, a bigger purpose. We simply have to have the faith to trust, to obey, to turn towards him and not against him. We're going to pick up here next time. But I want us to uh, just close your eyes with me and think through our response to this together. I ask the worship team to come and be in a place to lead us. A song called Your Great Grace. It's there in the everyday and the mundane. The everyday and the mundane, and especially in the difficult and the frustrating and humiliating and the suffering. Lord, show us. Show us what that means. There may be those of us today that have been weighed down, feelings of inadequacy, feelings of unimportance, feelings of I don't matter, what I do doesn't matter. Would you show us through your spirit that simply because we cannot see the impact of those things, doesn't mean they won't be used by you to change the world eventually. Help us to see that you use the small decisions, born oftentimes out of our suffering and hardship and weakness. That's what you use. Thank you, Father. Thank you that in your faithfulness you are always working. Help us to live in light of that truth. Amen. Please stand.